Hi, my name is Banala Sarami. I'm the host to the Pharmacogenomics for Pharmacists podcast on one of the largest pharmacy podcast network. When I was a student in pharmacy school, I was doing research with Washington University, going to people's homes that are age over 65 who are homebound, looking at all their medications. And I realized all these patients are on the same medications, but they have different side effects or advantages to them. So when I stumbled upon pharmacogenomics, I realized that was the missing piece of why everyone was acting different with the medication. It's all the genetic. So I'm a pharmacogenomics coach and I'm also a medical science liaison for a pharmacogenomics company. I create content on pharmacogenomics, educating providers and sales reps to provide more information on the value of pharmacogenomics and implementation of that piece. If you're looking for a pharmacogenomics coach, I can be reached on LinkedIn and also to listen on PGX for Pharmacists podcasts on Apple, Spotify and all the social media platforms as well. You're listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. Welcome to the Public Health Pharmacist Podcast with Dr. Christina Madison. Dr. Madison's mission is focused on spreading knowledge about public health to create better communities. The Public Health Pharmacist is a member of the Pharmacy Podcast Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Public Health Pharmacist Podcast, part of the Pharmacy Podcast Network. Today, I have another extraordinary guest with me today, Dr. Brocious, and I will tell you... um, for those of you who are listening and cannot see how awesome Dr. Brocious is, <laughs> he is this extraordinary plastic surgeon, humanitarian, and just all around amazing person. And so I cannot be more excited to talk with him about his work within the LGBTQ uh, community, as well as specifically in our trans community. So we actually know each other because um, we share patients. <laughs> so uh, my clinical practice is with Huntridge Family Clinic, and um, we cater to a variety of uh, individuals of trans experience. And when those individuals choose to get um, you know, uh, surgery as part of their transformation and their transitioning process, we send them over to Dr. Brocious. So uh, without further ado, I will go ahead and let you introduce yourself and then we will get started with some of the questions that I have for you. Okay. Thank you so much, Christina. I'm so happy to be here. Uh, ever since you asked me to be on this podcast a couple months ago, I've been looking forward to it. Um, and thank you for, for that great introduction. Uh, hopefully my reputation doesn't precede myself here. Um, but uh, again, my name is Dr. John Brocious. I'm an assistant professor of plastic surgery at UNLV School of Medicine. Um, I was actually uh, a trainee of the, uh, of the integrated residency program here in Nevada. So I spent six years here in training. Um, I'm from Pennsylvania originally, so I went back and I practiced in Pennsylvania for about three years after my training. And then um, sadly, my mentor, um, my, the program director of the plastic surgery residency in Las Vegas, uh, passed away very sadly of a, a kidney cancer um, about six years ago. And so at that point, um, UNLV asked if I would come back and uh, help out and basically be the program director of the residency program um, that I graduated from. So I was very, you know, proud to come back and, uh, and to be the director of the program um, uh, from which I graduated. I, um, 
I do everything in plastic surgery, head to toe, reconstruction, cosmetics. Um, I uh, Obviously, my focus now is transgender surgery, and we'll, we'll kind of get into that in, in a minute. But I'm the director and founder of the gender surgery program here uh, at the University of Nevada, and um, and I'm very busy with that. So uh, so I'm very excited to, to be on this podcast. And, and like you said, we've had relationships um, with your clinic uh, going back as far as two and a half years ago when I started doing the gender surgery here in Nevada. So... Awesome. And I think you're being a little bit humble as well. So we also uh, got a chance to meet each other in person for the first time because you were being honored as one of the top doctors this year for 2021 um, for Vegas Inc. magazine. So again, um, you know, what you do is is commendable because I think that, you know, first and foremost, this population is, you know, historically marginalized um, disenfranchised, and for you to kind of just take this on, because you could have gone in a different path, um, yes, and then yeah. also to be able to train the next generation of healthcare professionals, I think is just um, so commendable. Mm-hmm. So um, you, can you tell us a little bit about sort of your professional journey? I know you talked sure. a little bit about how you did your training here, but like, how did you come to realize that you had this passion to be so involved uh, with the trans community? Okay, so that's the question I get like almost on a daily basis. So I, I, I'm good, pretty good at answering this at this point. Um, so I, you know, it's not like people think that maybe I had like a transgender brother or had an experience when I was younger that kind of opened my eyes up, but it really wasn't that at all. Um, basically when I was in my plastic surgery training, so, you know, went to medical school, was fascinated by surgery and uh, decided to be a plastic surgeon. And during my residency, I realized I really like reconstruction. Um, I, I really like the critical thinking and I really like, you know, being able to help people out in the bind. And um, that's the like cancer patients or trauma patients. And, you know, certainly I do some cosmetic surgery as well, but, you know, really my passion was taking care of um, reconstructive patients, you know, really helping people out. And those are some of the more challenging surgeries as well. Um, however, when I graduated residency, it was 2013, it was the tail end of the recession. So when I went out into practice, it wasn't like I had a waiting room full of young women wanting breast augmentation. I was just hitting the ground running, right? So I knew I had to eat. So I was, I, I got this reputation that I would take anything under the sun. I would do right. chronic pressure wounds. I would do bed sores. I would do diabetic ulcers. Um, okay. Anything that, that could pay the bills, I was going to wound centers and doing wound care. Um, so if it was remotely related to plastic surgery, I would do it because I had to keep the lights on. And so that's when, um, Christina, I had... Uh, I got to start getting phone calls from transgender patients. Now this is probably, like I said, maybe 2014. Um, and this is in Pennsylvania, of course. And I was getting phone calls from transgender patients saying, Hey, look, we heard that you, you'll do anything. Um, do you do trans surgery? And I said, you know, I've never, I've never done trans surgery. It wasn't part of my training um, as, it, as it is still for, for many places. But I said, Hey, look, I'm used to learning new specialties, learning new techniques. That's one of the things I love about plastic surgery is that there's always something new to do. So I said, come on in and I'll see if I can help you. So I have my, I'll never forget my first interaction with a transgender patient, um, came to my office in Pittsburgh, was, was clearly a transgender woman, um, you know, kind of had a larger frame. And, and so it was obvious to me that she was transgender. And, um, you know, after the consultation, or basically in the middle of the consultation, towards the end, she started crying. And, uh, and I thought at that moment that I misgendered her, using the wrong name. And so I, I said to her, I said, I'm so sorry, you know, what did I say to offend you? And she said, no, you didn't offend me. She said, you're the only doctor in all of Pittsburgh who's treated me like a human being, you know, plastic surgeon, primary care. She says, every time I go to the doctor's office, 
if it's a regular doctor, they're like, you know, we don't really treat what you're here for. And if it's a plastic surgeon, basically they shoo me away right away saying, you know, we don't even want you in here. So I said, sure, you know, I'll do your surgery. Um, and, uh, and I'll remember that the surgery went off without a hitch. Um, in Pennsylvania, you know, they're not, they weren't paying for gender surgery and I believe they probably still aren't. Um, so she, she borrowed, she was a hairstylist and she borrowed like, you know, 10 bucks from everybody to pay for the surgery. And, um, I, I'd never had a happier patient. And so that's when I realized that there's this whole population that has been just left behind by medicine, by modern medicine. And I realized that, you know, as one individual, as one surgeon, I can make a huge impact on this huge community. Um, that's been kind of left behind. So that's when I started getting my passion for gender care. Now, if you imagine, you know, this is 2014, Pennsylvania, insurance not paying for this. The patients were few and far between, and it was just chest surgery at that time because that's all they could afford. And so, I, you know, I only had a smattering of patients at that point. And then when I moved to Nevada about six years ago, um, yeah, a couple of years after I had moved here, uh, I started getting phone calls again. You know, some of the trans patients uh, and the non-binary patients found out that I do gender surgery and I had done it in the past and started calling the office and saying, hey, um, I heard you do gender surgery. And I said, yeah, come on in. And so the next thing I know, I have one patient in my office and then 10 patients in my office to the point where here I am at about 75% of my practice is gender surgery. Um, wow. And insurance pays for this, fortunately, in the state of Nevada. You know, your Medicare, your Medicaid, and almost all the commercial insurance is paying for this. And so I, my practice had kind of exploded. And so for about six months, I was doing top surgeries just, you know, day in and day out. And then the patient started asking me, well, what about um, genital surgery? And so I kind of asked them, I said, well, who's doing genital surgery now for you guys? And they said, well, we have nobody. There's nobody in the state of Nevada that does it. Nope. <laughs> a handful of people in California, a couple in New York, a smattering throughout the country. But there's no, you know, these patients, a lot of them, a lot of these other surgeons don't take out of state insurance. Their wait list is years long. And these patients don't want to have these major surgeries and then travel out of state and have complications. And, you know, who's going to take care of them? We've had people who've gone to Thailand yep. and they've had to pay for their travel there, plus mm -hmm. the convalescence once yep. they're done with the surgery because they can't fly after yep. that. And yeah, so. Yep. So, I mean, the fact that it's local is just like, it's so, it's life-changing. It is yeah. literally life-changing for these patients. It is. And it's opened up the doors for so many patients to have a surgeon here that's that's local, um, that's able to do these. And um, and so that's when, you know, when I started doing top surgery in high volume here a couple of years ago, that's when I realized that I'm going to build a gender program. Um, because when the patients were coming to me, I was realizing, well, there some of them were having difficulties accessing, you know, hormone doctors accessing endocrinologists, primary care, getting their letters, um, accessing gynecologists for hysterectomy. So I realized, I said, hey, look, well, you know, if I want to build this gender program, I need to find all of these specialists. So I bas basically tried to, I, I pinned down every person in, the, in, the, in Southern Nevada that did, that was interested in trans care, whether it was UNLV, community, and basically rounded everybody up and formed what I call the Nevada Gender Affirming Healthcare Project. Um, and kind of bring everybody together to start networking. To, so that way I could, we could pass patients back and forth like we do um, so that patients actually have a network and it's not like they're on their own trying to find a gynecologist, a hormone doctor, a surgeon, that kind of a thing. Um, and so it was a huge endeavor, Christina, to, to kind of bring everybody together. It was a lot of homework, a lot of stress. Um, but finally, now we have a big um, network of, of basically, you know, any kind of surgeon you need, any kind of medical professional you need, mental health, hormones. Um, we've, we've pretty much found everybody that we need to, for the full complement of gender care here in Southern Nevada, um, which not a lot of cities can say. So 
I know that was kind of like a long-winded story and how I got into gender surgery, um, but it, it kind of almost goes back to my, you know, I was, I had a Catholic upbringing. I'm not religious anymore, but, you know, one of the things that I, that the take-home message that I got is, you know, take care of the marginalized, take care of the poor, underserved. And, you know, as a plastic surgeon, I thought this is the perfect opportunity to do that within my field. Because as a plastic surgeon, you know, you're not, it's, it's very rare that we're involved with public health, that kind of a thing. Um, you know, I do a lot of trauma burns and I do care for the marginalized my whole career, um, but nothing like the gender expansive community. I mean, this is treating a whole population that has almost been forgotten by healthcare. Um, so that's how it became my passion. And now it's about 75% of what I do. And, um, and like you said, me and my patients, um, we're, we, we're almost inspiring to each other. And so you kind of mentioned about, you know, the tattoos and, and I know to the audience that can't see me, but I'm, I'm basically covered head to toe in tattoos, including my whole entire throat, my hands, everything. And, and people sometimes ask me, they say, you know, why are you doing this? Like, you're, this is going to be horrible for your practice. And I say to them, look, I've now worked with the transgender community for so long. I realized that these patients have inspired me to be myself and that's all. And, and, and that's something that, you know, that's all they want is to be, you know, people to see them for what's inside and not judge them for how they look. And so I, I kind of realized, you know, I'm not comparing a tattoo to living the life of a transgender person. Certainly there's no comparison there. Um, but I realized that I don't really care what people think about how I look anymore. And I, and it was my patients that inspired me to be myself because I used to have all these hidden tattoos and, and now I, I've realized that the, and the community embraces that. And like we said, like the minute that they see me, they say, all right, this guy, I don't think this guy's going to judge me for how I look. This guy seems oh. down to earth. I'm ready to, well, I'm ready to open up to you. Um, and so, and so that, that was my kind of my professional journey, how it got me from, you know, basically having no specialty, just doing everything in plastic surgery to within a couple of years, almost my entire practice is becoming gender surgery. And I couldn't be happier. My patients couldn't be happier. It's, it's one of the, one of the things I also realized, Christina, is that, you know, focusing on trauma and cancer my whole career up until recently, I used to tell people, if you met me at work, it was one of the worst days of your life. You either yeah. were diagnosed with cancer or had your arm cut off or, you know, got shot in the face uh, by a shotgun. So I'm actually, I'm on call right now at UMC Hospital um, as we speak. And so my group is the only one in the state of Nevada that does limb and finger reattachments and things like that. So at any minute, you know, I could get called in for, you know, a limb or a finger reattachment. So I always used to tell people, if you met me at work, that was a bad day for you. But now it's 180 degrees from that. If you meet me at work and you're a gender patient, one of the greatest days of your life. And, you know, I get to share these very intimate experiences with them. And I get to do that every single day. I get to be one of the best days of their life. They get to have this gender surgery they've been waiting for forever, um, this life-changing surgery. And I get to be there and share that with them. And so that's why I have this passion. It's um, it, it's such an amazing community. And, um, and the bar has been set so low already by society that, you know, I think that I'm going above and beyond for the community. But really... They've been treated so poorly by society, by healthcare, that all I have to do is, is be nice and do my surgeries to the best of my ability. And they think that like, I'm a hero. Um, and so it's Which um, is so sad, right? It is. Like, that it they really is. Become it's, so like mm -hmm. numb to the fact that they should just be mistreated. And exactly. That's okay. Exactly. It's not okay. <laughs> no, no, it's not okay. The world needs to catch up, Christina. And, um, and, you know, it's getting better. It's still a tough world to live in for them, but I think, doing things like you and I are doing is and helping, um, and helping promote, you know, um, the public, uh, message. Um, I think it's really helping this community. So that's, that's, that's my, how I became professionally involved with the gender community, um, in a very big nutshell right there. <laughs> <laughs> so for those of you guys who cannot see Dr. Brocious, uh, 
I would say that you are a very similar to a tattooed younger uh, Dave Clooney, like just kind of <laughs> like that's that's what I would say. I mean, just seriously, like the long hair, the beard, the ta- I mean, it's just a good look. It's a good look. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I get it. Um, <laughs> you don't, it but people that meet me on the street, I, I stop telling people that I'm a doctor when I meet them randomly because nobody believes me. They say, everybody asks, are you a tattoo artist or are you a drummer? You have to be one or the other, or a bouncer, something like that. Yeah, um, like Peter Navarro, somebody <laughs> from like Nirvana. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So yeah, it's uh, I do have a unique look, um, but it fits my patient population um, and it works, it works for me. So So yeah. Yes, I had one of my patients call me Dr. Diva yesterday, which I thought was hilarious. (laughs) And I was like, okay, I mean, if it helps me to like be able to relate to you as a gay male, as a Uh, cisgender woman of color, you mm -hmm. go ahead and call me Dr. Diva, you know? like That is awesome. (laughs) Good for you. That's what we have to do (laughs) with our patients, you know, Mm -hmm. because I think it's that relationship and that, that rapport building it's so important. And unfortunately, I feel like is has lost within healthcare because mm-hmm. of the just the kind of, you know, assembly line version of what we've become. Um, you know, just it's all about the numbers. I think about that, you know, even in the community pharmacy setting, like there's so little time for us to actually counsel our patients and talk with them and figure out what's going on in their life. And you know, it's mental health awareness month. And, you know, I think so much about how, you know, how so many of our patients struggle with mental health and just feeling worthy and feeling like they're enough. And I think that, you know, the fact that you're able to provide these surgeries goes so far with that process, Mm -hmm. you know, because they've been told their whole life that like, this isn't right. Or, you know, this isn't something that you should try to do for yourself. And, you know, it just depends. I mean, I've had people in their sixties come to my clinic and want to transition, you know, some, you know, I think it's definitely been more uh, present in our society. I I definitely think the concept around gender identity and sexual orientation and the fluidity of that um, is definitely more Um, acceptable within our society, but it's been around forever. I think about the concept of Native Americans and the fact that they have had this concept of two spirit. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know if you've heard of this. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So like, I I mean, they had, you know, people that were chiefs and, you know, high priests in their, you know, in their society that were two spirit. And Mm -hmm. that was like the earliest kind of description within history of someone being transgender and no one judged them. Yep. Right. And I really do feel that it's that, that societal construct and the fact that they're told that somehow this is wrong, that it like infects them and infects them and infects their soul. And then everything after that is so challenging Mm -hmm. when really we should be opening up our arms to these people and saying, Hey, how can I help you? What can I do for you? Mm -hmm. And unfortunately we still have a lot of biases and a lot of stigmatization around people just wanting to be their authentic selves. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So obviously the pandemic has impacted our ability to provide services. Mm -hmm. Um, So I was just wondering, um, you know, good, bad, ugly, like what's, what's been going on with you? Like, obviously I think we're kind of on 
the other side of this. Yeah. Um, but like, how do you think we can continue to address these issues of equity and diversity and inclusion? And how do we how do we get out of this pandemic and mm -hmm. still address some of these things? Because the pandemic has just really shown light on yeah. things that were already there, but like so much worse. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, like you said, the pandemic has kind of highlighted um, the inequities uh, just in our community in terms of healthcare. Um, you know, not everybody has access to internet. You know, a lot of our patients are marginalized. They can't have a virtual meeting. Um, and that's not even feasible. A lot of them, um, you know, marginally employed as they are, um, lost their jobs. Um, a lot of them, a lot of them unfortunately, don't have um, the education. And, uh, and a lot of them lost some of these jobs that they had previously. And so the, the pandemic has been really tough for the, um, for the gender expansive community. Um, like you said, hopefully we're on the tail end of things. Uh, it definitely has impacted um, the ability to, to kind of grow my, my surgical um, practice. Uh, for example, I was, you know, before we got on this podcast, we we're talking about phalloplasty. And so that's uh, basically phalloplasty is the creation of a man, um, you know, a penis and, and testicles and scrotum um, from scratch. And that's something that I was hoping to have offered already. However, I couldn't really travel out of state to learn these surgeries and techniques. And so, you know, I promised the trans patients, the trans masculine patients, you know, a year or two ago, I'm going to learn these bottom surgeries. And now they're, they're calling and they're saying, when are we going to have this? When are we going to have this? And I say, hey, it's, you know, I'm, I'm just waiting for that window of opportunity to take my team and, and learn those surgeries and bring them back here to Nevada. So um, the pandemic, I can't say that it's done a whole lot of good for my practice or even me personally, I had COVID and I, I was a long hauler. Uh, I had it almost a year ago and I'm still having symptoms. I've, um, I, my energy level never came back. My heart palpitations continue. Um, headaches are still persistent. Um, temperature regulation. I've never, I've never been quiet myself. And also I lost my, my grandfather to COVID too. So um, from a personal standpoint, COVID has been really rough on me. And then, you know, professionally, it kind of stunted my ability to um, offer these surgeries to the patients. Um, but, what I realize is that these patients are willing to wait. You know, they've already waited their whole lives for these surgeries, a lot of them. And um, as long as they know that I'm on track to, to provide the surgeries that, that currently we're not offering, um, you know, they see, that, they see that I'm passionate about it. They see that I'm not going to just say, all right, you know what, I'm, I'm good with where I am. Um, I'm, not, I'm not happy until we offer the full complement of gender surgeries on every insurance plan um, here in Nevada. So my, my hope, my little project here maybe has been slowed down a little bit. Um, and sadly, it's been slowed for other people around the country it, it, because I'm one of the few people who does bottom surgery. I'll get emails and phone calls from surgeons around the country. For example, this guy from Atlanta recently called me and said, hey, look, there's nobody in all of Georgia that does bottom surgeries. I heard you do them. I don't know how he found out about me. And he said, are you willing to you know, let me come shadow you? And I said, I will as soon as this COVID window opens up. Um, I don't want you to fly out here and take time off and learn the genital surgeries and then only to find out the day before we have to cancel because of a COVID-related okay. issue. So it's, um, it's also been hurting, you know, my ability to teach other surgeons around the country. Um, but I think as we kind of push through this pandemic, um, it really has exposed, you know, some of the real inequities socially as well as medically um, and healthcare for the, the gender expansive community. And I think that, you know, um, the government and, and people of wealth are, are seeing this. And, um, and I think maybe we have, we're going to have people kind of helping us in the right direction in terms of the government giving more support for some projects like a gender, you know, the gender surgery project I'm working on um, and just ways of, of getting to our patients. We kind of talked about, 
you know, the patients aren't even able sometimes to get to my office because of, um, because of uh, not, you know, being able to get a transportation, um, can't get a bus pass. And with COVID, it's even more complicated. So we're even working on trying to get funding for, for people to, um, for maybe nurse practitioners or, or, or physician extenders to go out to the patient's houses and have maybe a mobile yeah. unit that can go and for your guys' standpoint, take do blood tests and lab draws. For my standpoint, yeah. post-op checks. So I think that, you know, it really has highlighted some of the inequities in healthcare and, um, and maybe people were realizing it quicker um, than they would have without the pandemic. So I want to say maybe there's a silver lining to it, but I, you know, I haven't seen a whole lot so far. It's been really nothing but a lot of negatives, but, um, but that's okay. Like you said, I think we're coming to the, towards the end of it. Um, as long as people keep getting vaccinated, I think that we will be able to vaccinate our way out of this pandemic ultimately. Well, if there was ever a better advertisement for vaccination, I don't know what else is, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. you know, because I think that's the one thing that I've, I've realized, because, you know, I do a lot of media around COVID, um, you know, for our local, um, our, our local market here. And, you know, that's one of the biggest things that I get asked the question, you know, is there anything else you'd like to tell the audience? Is there anything else that you would like people to understand or know? And, and what I think that is the disconnect is that the choices that this individual is making is directly impacting other people's health. Absolutely. And the fact that we have now people who are not able to get breast surgeries, or like lumpectomies or cancer mm -hmm. surgery or top surgery or bottom surgery, all of these quote unquote elective surgery, which by the way, trans surgery is not elective. Yes. It's absolutely. not like that hundred percent. So if anybody was thinking that I'm dispelling that right now, it's not <laughs> elective. You. It is a needed surgery. It's a life-saving, you know, it's it funny that you life that. Saving and life affirming. Yep. So, you know, the fact that you get told day before, sorry, I, I can't have you in my outpatient surgery. I can't yep. have you in my, you know, in my surgery center because I I'm up to my ears in COVID patients and I can't, I can't, I can't have the staff. Like I can't, yeah. I can't even give you an anesthesiologist. I That's can't give you any ancillary support because all I'm dealing with is COVID patients. Mm -hmm. Like it's ridiculous. And, yeah. and to me, it just seems, honestly, it just seems selfish. You took the word out and, of my mouth. That's the only word I can use to describe it. And it's, it's very so, it's so distressing because it's like, I can give you a vaccine. You likely will have very few side effects. You will likely protect yourself and your family. And if we do it on a large enough scale, we can literally protect the world. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> like, I know it's, it seems sounds so rational when you say it and yet people are not getting on board and this whole idea my body, my right. It's like, you can't go out and drink and drive because you may hurt somebody else, right? If you want to drink yourself to death, that's your right. The How minute that somebody else is involved, it's completely different. And, um, and that's what COVID is. It's really not about your own body. It's about, you know, it, it's really, it's sad that we have to talk people into this. You know, I, I would hope that people would just view it as their civic duty that, hey, look, you know what? We don't, none of us want a vaccine that's new, but if this can help people from dying, this can keep the hospitals open. Um, if this could decrease my chance of going to the hospital and taking up a bed and you know, potentially exposing a healthcare worker or somebody else to, to yeah. a deadly disease, um, it makes no sense to me why people wouldn't want to do this. And, and that's kind of one of the sad things in our country is that we're so much a very, we're independent people here in the, in the United States, but sometimes we have to look at the bigger picture. It's not communism just because we all want everyone to get vaccinated. I mean. 
just look at the number of healthcare workers that are not getting vaccinated. There's very few of us. The people that know, you know, the very few physicians, very few pharmacists, I'm sure that are unvaccinated, people that know the details and that have studied these things, we're all getting the vaccine. And, um, and it's really people that I think are uneducated uh, on the vaccine or people that are just sticking to their guns. I don't like being told what to do, but it's sad that we have to tell people what to do. You'd think that out of the kindness of their heart, they'd want to do the right thing. But that's a podcast for another day, Christina. We could talk about this the entire time. <laughs> oh yeah, we could we could have a whole conversation yeah. about like the misinformation campaigns and mm-hmm. I mean I just think about Colin Powell, right? Like the man is an American treasure, and literally he died because of someone else's poor choices. Yep. Right. Yep. Like Absolutely. because I'm sure it was somebody that they trusted, somebody that they didn't anticipate that was unvaccinated, that Mm -hmm. was maybe asymptomatic and spread. But that's who we should be thinking about. Like, Mm -hmm. don't just think about, you know, oh, I'll just get it and I'll get over it. Yeah. What about the people who are severely immunosuppressed, Mm -hmm. who are vaccinated, did their part, but because of their current medical picture, can't mount enough of an immune response in order to protect themselves, to prevent them from having severe complications, hospitalization, Mm -hmm. and death. I mean, the man was 85 years old, had multiple myeloma, Parkinson's disease, was still doing interviews Mm -hmm. up until like two months ago and literally died within a week of getting COVID. Yeah. Like that should tell you everything right there. Yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's it really is sad, and uh, and I I never anticipated this. I thought, you know, I remember I remember specifically when they announced that we have a vaccine because I was on my ten day quarantine with COVID. And oh, I was like, gosh darn it! If you I poor just, thing. I had just waited another month, I would be vaccinated and not and not be this long hauler. And I remember thinking, gosh, it's finally going to be over. And I didn't think I didn't think I'd see one person not want to get the vaccine, let alone you know a, a significant fraction of our country. I didn't I did not foresee this. Um, Almost 70, 70 million people right now are still haven't even started their vaccines. Yeah. I, I thought that people will be kicking and screaming and fighting because that's initially what we saw. We saw people coming from out of the country, from out of state, people flocking to try to get illegally get the vaccine. Now it's like we can't even force. We can't pay people. We're trying to pay people with lotteries, for, you know, vouchers. And we yep. can't even pay people to get this vaccine, which is really sad because if they had the information and, and used it logically, um, everyone would just get the vaccine and we'd all be out of this pandemic. But anyway. Wow. <laughs> wow. Well, obviously I could talk to you forever. Yeah. Um, I do have like two more questions sure. um, just because I do feel like, you know, like your journey is so unique, but I do feel that, you know, you have some nuggets of wisdom that mm-hmm. we can have our, our listeners take away. What do you think is kind of like one of the best investments that you made in your professional career? Because obviously you're, you know, your faculty, um, you know, your residency trained, you're doing mm-hmm. all these things within plastics, but ultimately you're an entrepreneur, right? Yeah. Because you, you have to deal with all these things related to business decisions too, because you're running a practice. Yeah. So I'm just curious, like, what are, what are some of the things that you feel like has been like the best investment for you um, being, you know, kind of Jack of all trades um, and and having to wear so many hats. Okay. So, you know, I think this will be a nice opportunity for me to kind of tell you what my future projects is and tell the audience is that I, um, one of my, myself and one of my partners from UNLV medicine, we're actually leaving the medical school, um, and starting our own practice. And so, uh, we're hoping to open up shop here in Las Vegas in about five months. 
And so I'm going to answer this question in hopes that it's very successful, but this it's is going to be, it's going to be, yeah, it has to be right. It can't fail. So <laughs> this is, um, this is one of the scariest moments of my life, Christina, because one of the things I liked for working for a university for the last six years is I know how much I'm going to get paid. I know every month my, my salary is, and I have the safety of this university, right? If things fail, the university is a state school. They'll always fund it. Right. Um, but now I'm taking a huge gamble. I'm taking my whole entire life savings. I'm liquidating my retirement and I'm about to go all in on a private practice. Um, and so I, I personally think it's the right thing to do to serve my patients better. That's why I'm doing this is uh, I, I see an opportunity to really um, expand um, not only what I'm doing with gender surgery, but just even reconstructive surgery here in, in Nevada. We all know that Nevada has a shortage of doctors and um, you know we don't have a shortage of plastic surgeons per se, but we have a shortage of plastic surgeons doing reconstruction. I mean, this is a flashy town, so there's plenty of cosmetic plastic surgeons, but what the, the goal of me and my partner is to open up almost essentially a reconstructive practice. And so um, there really isn't anybody doing, you know, high volume, strictly reconstruction um, here in town uh, outside the university. And I think that um, him and I are both basically going all in financially on this. Um, so let's just maybe, touch base again. I'll do another podcast with you in about a year or two. And I'll let okay. you know if this was actually the right answer, because this could also have been the worst investment I ever made in my whole life. Um, if it doesn't go well, I don't foresee that happening. I think for what I do, there's always going to be work. Um, and, uh, and so that's kind of, it's a big investment, but, but it's, it's in a way I'm better on myself. And, um, and, and, and it's funny because I've never laid a single cent on a gamble uh, in Las Vegas. I've never gambled a day in my life, even though I've lived here for, you know, 12 years. Um, so but this is my first big bet in Las Vegas and, uh, and the way I look at it, this is an investment in myself. Um, it's not really a gamble. Um, I know it really, whether I succeed or fail depends on me and my hard work and as well as my partner. So, um, I don't have a whole lot of nuggets of advice yet. I think next time we talk, I will have a lot more to say about things that maybe went wrong, things that went right and things that I would recommend to future people trying to go out and do what I do. Um, so hopefully that answered your question enough, uh, uh for your liking. Yes. Well, here's the thing. I think, um, you know, you, you didn't do this in a vacuum. You did your homework. You made sure that you talked to financial advisors. Yep. Right. So like there is that yep. aspect of it as well. So, again, I just want to put a plug in for like obviously making sure that people are whatever they're deciding to do um, related to entrepreneurship, that they're seeking counsel with either financial advisors or an attorney mm -hmm. Um, cause I, I have, I have an, I have an attorney myself that I've just, you know, that I talk to mm -hmm. and even just like protecting yourself as, um, as your own brand, right? Mm -hmm. Like, cause you are, I mean, for all intents and purposes, you are now a brand, right? Mm -hmm. Because you are this, you know, gender reconstructive kind of marvel, right? And so you have to protect that as well. Yeah. And so, um, I think asset protection and just financial, good financial planning um, yeah. is is part of that as well. So yeah, yeah, and absolutely. And and one thing for anyone who's listening, who's thinking about starting their own business, whether it's medical or whatever, um, what I realize is banks don't like to loan money to startups. Banks, uh, they they want. It's almost like that old expression: you need money to make money. Yeah. Um, we, we asked for money to, to start, you know, a practice for money to kind of get things going. And the banks were like, eh, we'll loan you money for a building because we can always take that back. Um, but I, I'm going to have to go all in with my own money. So anyone who's thinking about starting a company and thinks they're going to get venture capitalists and banks to throw money at you, it's probably not going to happen. So you have this idea of opening up a company, start saving now because you may have to be using your own money 
um, to start. And, and at the same time, it's probably good because if you're spending your own money, you're less likely to, to overspend and, 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 and spend too much in the beginning of your, of your company or practice, or whatever you're going to start. So, um, so that's just something is I, I've always lived kind of frugally, um, because I have my student loans crippling me. So I always thought I want to pay off my student loans before I go live like a doctor. Now I still have my student loans and I'm going to try to start my own practice. So like, Eventually, I'll dig myself out of this pile of, of debt, um, but I, I'm at the age of my life where I can't wait any longer. I can't wait till I pay off my student loans before I start my practice because I'll be 100. So um, so it just uh, hopefully it's successful. I, like I said, I think uh, for what I do, uh, there's always going to be work. It's just a matter of uh, providing good service to the patients again and keep getting the word out. Well, this has been such an extraordinary conversation. I cannot thank you enough for your time. I know how busy you are. And I just really, um, you know, from the bottom of my heart, want to thank you um, for what you do for my patients, for what you're doing for our community, and then just for awareness, right? Like, and just the fact that this is a viable option and that not only is this like a passion project, but this is potentially profitable, right? Mm -hmm. So like, that's the other thing too, like, uh, you know, obviously I talk a lot about public health, but, you know, my big thing is that this isn't just about like healthier communities, like it can still be profit and mm -hmm. revenue generating and you can still help your community. Yeah. Right. And so like, they're not mutually exclusive, like you can do both. And ultimately you're going to get more out of it when you invest in yourself and mm -hmm. you invest in your community. So I applaud you for what you're doing and I wish you the best of luck. And, Thank you know, you. Uh, remember if you ever need a pharmacist, a friendly pharmacist <laughs> to collaborate with, I'm happy to help. Um, <laughs> so that's, that's always an option if you yeah, want to have absolutely. a one-stop shop. <laughs> absolutely. I'll make sure when that building gets built up, I'll make sure we have an office for you, Christina. <laughs> You heard it here first, everyone. <laughs> it's documented now. <laughs> oh, man, it's in the record. Yeah. So with that, I will say, um, uh, again, thank you so much, Dr. Brocious. Um, continued success. And um, I just, uh, you know, I'm going to take you up on that offer. I'm going to see where you're at in October of 2022. Sounds good. See how that practice is running. And um, ultimately just, you know, really want people to understand that, you know, caring for this community is, is not hard. You just have to be nice. <laughs> like you literally just have to be a nice person yeah. and to be accepting um, and to understand that um, everyone's choices may not be your choice but you can still do so much for them um, because again, you said the bar is set so low and it shouldn't be, and it's mm -hmm. not okay. And we need to do more to help this population be able to not just survive, but to thrive. Right. And I know that you're doing that. Likewise. Thank you so much for having me. Um, you know, I could say all the same things about you and what you guys are doing over at the Huntridge Clinic. We can't, you, you can't provide top-notch care without me. I can't provide top-notch care without you. Uh, it truly does take a village to care for these patients. Um, and so, you know, your role in this is just as critical as mine, is just as critical as the mental health professionals. So, um, so thank you so much for having me, helping me spread the word that, you know, these are services that are out there. Hopefully people are listening and uh, maybe have not heard much about gender surgery before um, and they learn something uh, and they can tell other people that, hey, look, this is actually medicine um, and, uh, and this is medically necessary for patients. Amen to that. <laughs> Time is our most precious asset. 
and we thank you for spending your time with us and Dr. Madison, the public health pharmacist. Learn more at thepublichealthpharmacist.com.